Every Wednesday from 2 to 4, right here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and all over the world, online at WERU.org. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Mabel Wadsworth Center, providing comprehensive sexual and reproductive health services to people in northern and eastern Maine since 1984. Insurance, Maine care, self-pay accepted, and reduced fees for uninsured clients. MabelWadsworth.org. It's 10 o'clock and it's time for Healthy Options. Andre Bella, your host for today's Healthy Options, a program about integrative health therapies. Today we're speaking with Jeff Kaufman, a former NYPD cop, attorney, and teacher. He's a speaker for LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, an organization of law enforcement professionals advocating ending the war on drugs. I'd um, like to remind our listeners that this is a live call-in show. So in about a half an hour, uh, please call us with your questions and comments. And that number is 866-625-6273. And we'll be giving you that number again throughout the show. Jeff Kaufman began his criminal justice career in 1980 as a beat cop for the NYPD. He was assigned to the 75th Precinct in Brooklyn, one of the busiest in New York City. Within a year, he would be one of the responding officers to the Palm Sunday massacre of 11 people, introducing him to the effect of drugs and the war on drugs on his community. In his free time, Jeff attended law school and was transferred to the NYPD's legal bureau, where he brought cases against individuals for forfeiture of their property, Targets included both drug dealers and recreational users. After realizing how wrong these policies were, Jeff left the police department and became a defense attorney for the indigent. Jeff says, what affected me most were the number of young people who faced draconian sentencing guidelines, lives snuffed out by our drug war. In the mid-90s, he was offered a teaching position at Rikers Island. Jeff says, I taught criminal law to adolescents facing life sentences for violent crimes and drug felonies. In class, we had the opportunity to fully explore the ramifications of the drug war. Hello, Jeff. Um, Thank you very much for joining us today on Healthy Options. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Nice to have you. Um, When I read uh, your information, your biography, information of your professional career, it really struck me just how varied your career has been in the criminal justice system and being a cop on the street and then being an attorney for forfeiture cases, an attorney for the indigent, and then a teacher on Rikers Island. Can you talk a little bit about each of these uh, perspectives? Maybe just start off, what was it like to be a cop on the street in New York City? Well, it, it was an incredible experience. Um, ever since uh, being a young child, I always marveled at uh, police and police work. Um, and it was uh, a natural outgrowth of my civil service uh, family. My father was uh, a member of the New York City Fire Department, and um, it, it just seemed natural that I would guide myself or try to get into uh, the New York City Police Department. When I got there, um, the city had just recovered from an incredible fiscal crisis, which almost dealt uh, a bankruptcy to the city, and um, 
we uh, were terrifically undermanned. The number of police officers on the street at the time is probably less than, than half of what's on the street today. Um, and we had probably three times as much violent crime as we have today. So, so about uh, when, faced, when was this? What years are we talking okay, this about? Okay, is, this is in the late 70s and early 80s. Yep. Um, and I, I was in several precincts in the eastern part of Brooklyn, um, areas known as uh, Brownsville, uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant, um, East New York, uh, Bushwick, areas that uh, at that time were, were seeped in, in very violent crime that was uh, uh, part and parcel of uh, the drug war and, and what was going on in the, in the country generally. Uh, at that time, uh, I can give you an example. We had um, an area servicing uh, perhaps five or six square miles of probably the most violent area in the urban area in the, in the country at the time and had one or two patrol cars out, uh, which basically meant that there was no time to actually do anything other than mop up after major crimes. There was few arrests, uh, because if you made an arrest, you were off the street patrolling. Uh, if you did make an arrest, it took days to arraign prisoners. Uh, the city was in, was in desperate, uh, desperate need of, of uh, criminal justice and, and, and law enforcement. And um, it was a difficult job. Uh, I admit uh, at times uh, it was almost bewildering. Uh, that's probably part of the reason that uh, I started studying the law and seeing if I could help uh, deal with these issues in, in a different path. So so that led you into what you work for the Legal Bureau of the NYPD um, in forfeiture cases. Can you That's explain right. yeah, what, what was... that asset forfeitures? Yeah. Right. Okay. So what happened was um, New York City had a forfeiture law on the books since the 30s. It uh, was not used that much because uh, there were more, more important priorities for the police department to be involved in. Uh, but as the drug war grew in the 70s, and there was uh, an interest in Washington uh, to help augment uh, police budgets, um, the city uh, law department, as well as the New York City Police Department's legal bureau and the police commissioner, all saw, th- all saw that this was a, a way to increase revenue for the police department and the city um, and get more cops out on the street, get uh, uh, hopefully uh, more money into police budgets. And we embarked on a uh, crusade, so to speak, in going after um, large drug dealers and anything else we could get our hands on uh, to take their money and their profits from crime. But unfortunately, the large drug dealers were elusive. Um, As we all know, uh, they know how to protect themselves pretty well. And we caught very, very few large people. We only caught the small people, the people that were actually using or selling drugs uh, and forfeiting things such as cars and uh, aspects of their livelihood. I can remember one time we we actually forfeited a taxi medallion um, from a taxi driver that was uh, smoking marijuana, uh, and that was, was his livelihood. I mean, that's something that uh, mm-hmm. really started getting me to think, like, what were we doing? Uh, it took the uh, New York State uh, courts all the way up to the highest court in New York to say, basically, the police department had no right to take that medallion. Uh, although they did say that we did have the right to take his car, which was kind of strange, but um, in that particular case, it really started me to think about about what we were doing as a police department, the kinds of things that I was doing personally, and I started looking for, for ways out of the police department. Um, talk about um, that conference that you went to and that, that comment about the Empire State Building. Right. That was um, interesting. Which, which changed a lot of the attitudes 
in New York. I went to the first national uh, asset forfeiture uh, conference. I think it was in 1982 uh, in Washington, D.C., organized by the Department of Justice. And we were um, kind of celebrities. Um, New York City Police Department was always thought about being, you know, one of the most progressive and most uh, advanced type of uh, police agency in the country. And we, uh, I represented the, um, the legal bureau and the police department, the police commissioner, uh, in this in this conference in Washington. And uh, we we learned about how the uh, federal government was uh, enabling local jurisdictions and states to basically um, take the proceeds of, of the drug war uh, and convert them to um, to police budgets, uh, police budget uses. And what we did was uh, basically um, learn at this conference that the feds could uh, forfeit things that we didn't have any jurisdiction over. And then uh, for our part in that uh, in that attempt to forfeit those those properties, uh, we could then ask that they be um, uh, used for city purposes and so that they could augment our budgets indirectly. Um, at the conference, uh, a very famous quote of mine, which guided me for a long time, was that uh, the, uh, the the uh, assistant attorney general that was giving a lecture on, on how to actually do this uh, commented that, uh, look, uh, you're from New York City. Um, you have the Empire State Building. If you, if you get the owner of the uh, uh, Empire State Building to uh, be arrested for smoking a joint in the lobby of the Empire State Building, we could take the whole building. Um, that to me was astounding um, because, in some in some respects, um, some of the some of my supervisors uh, in the police department were absolutely, you know, enthralled and, thr- and, and thrilled at the at the, uh, at the uh, prospect of of forfeiting such large sums of money. And others started to see that this this is there's really something fundamentally wrong about what was going on. Um, I can honestly tell you that the, we never made an attempt to go after the Empire State Building or any <laughs> large building in New York City, but uh, the, it did it did basically show us that there was some some fundamental problems with the way in which um, our forfeiture unit and our police legal bureau was actually operating, uh, and it would take a number of years before this was actually uh, this actually convinced the police department that certain things were wrong. They still do forfeiture cases. Um, it's still a source of their income, but um, we now, with the with hindsight and history, we've seen um, the uh, militarization of the police department, the um, the other things that have taken place that we've seen evidence more recently about uh, that's that's gained national attention. Um, many of many of those things started with uh, with forfeiting property and converting that property into police equipment and. Uh, and other kinds of supplies. Oh, I, so you're saying that provided the money for that provided the, the equipment? Money, of course, right. Of course, the you know the wars in, in yeah. Afghanistan and Iraq provided other military money and, and and budgets that were that were given to surplus uh, materials. But we, uh, the New York City Police Department, had some pretty incredibly sophisticated army type equipment um, that was purchased with uh, with forfeited money, which kind of led to some of the militarization of, of the New York City Police Department and the rest of the country, I think, uh, set a trend in terms of what was going on as well. So the impact of, of this, although I'm not suggesting it was a sole cause of the militarization of the Police Department, but the impact of, of having that unaccounted, uh, un- unaccountable money uh, available for uh, use by uh, police uh, supervisors to purchase those things 
can lead to a comment that a former police commissioner said that, you know, we have the we have anti aircraft capability. We could take a plane out of the sky. And to me that's not that's not the purpose of policing and especially not in New York City. I was always mm-hmm. proud that New York City was uh, was a place where the police were somewhat respected and uh, and willing to sit down with opposing groups and work out agreements, which I did on, on many different fronts, including domestic relations and other issues that we were willing to work with, with groups um, that other police departments wouldn't touch. Um, and then to hear this kind of um, real militarization, this, this, this sense that us against them, that really that really said to me that, you know, the police department is not fulfilling its function in a democratic society. Mm-hmm. So is that is that when you left the police department uh, and worked as an attorney for indigent people? And right, then, I did. Okay. Um, yeah. One of the one of the one of the things that was, you know, a, a nice transition in my career, although probably not very usual, was that um, I ended up working for these uh, indigent panels of attorneys, which um, represent uh, people who can't afford their own uh, lawyer but can't be represented by the legal aid organization because of some conflict of interest. And um, I first started in, actually in the family court system um, where children were being removed from parents just uh, for occasional drug use. Uh, and it was, it was incredible to me that, um, and I, uh, we would represent, uh, the panel members would represent the parents usually. Sometimes we would represent the children, but most oftentimes we'd represent the accused parents. Mm-hmm. And... Um, they would either have active drug cases against them or not active drug cases against them. But the uh, social service agency felt that uh, um, that the presence of drugs in the home uh, presented a clear and present danger to the children. And their first reaction was to remove the children because um, you didn't want to find yourself on the front page of the major New York newspaper like The Post uh, for not removing a child um, and something dangerous happening to that child. Um, so the reaction by social services in those agents, in those in those uh, circumstances, was a complete destruction of families. Rather than uh, the the goal of the Family Court Act in New York State, and I'm sure in every state in the union, which is to reunite families, um, rehabilitation, other kinds of issues that would go along with uh, with dealing with drug problems, were basically, you know, put on the shelf. Uh, the basic thing was get that get that child out of the out of the home into the foster care system. Once the child went into the foster care system, it was very difficult not to, uh, to, to get that child back into the original family. Um, now, there, I, you know, I'm not blind to the fact that there are people with severe problems and, you know, and, and should not be, uh, you know, having their children while they, while they have rehabilitation. But the, the, uh, the sense that, you know, a small uh, drug arrest uh, could evidence the fact that there was a you know that there was a dangerous relationship in the home was a complete misunderstanding of mm-hmm. of what the purpose of uh, the family court act was in terms of uh, reuniting these families and there was again you know fiscal issues and other problems uh, led social service agencies to make snap decisions and you know and once a child was in the foster care system they they believed that they were safe and and although that turned out sometimes not to be true um, the fact is, is that they at least knew that they had some plausible deniability when it came to a, a, a newspaper reporter who asked them, you know, what happened with the child, and th- their responsibility, you know, was not as great as it would be if they had left the child with the family. So I was put in a in a in a very, very difficult position of trying to trying to work out with the court system and 
and work with these families to try to get um, these issues dealt with, which meant that um, I had to uh, work almost, uh, you know, as a social worker more than as an attorney, although obviously it, it was in a legal setting, uh, to get the services for, for my clients. And it was almost impossible. There was no funds for rehabilitation. The, bed, the systems, uh, the uh, hospitals and the rehabilitation centers were either non-existent or their beds were full for the few that were available. Uh, and it was a, uh, there was no commitment to, uh, to state uh, and city budgeting towards uh, dealing with the medical problem of drug dependence. Rather, um, they would put in, uh, you know, by removing these children, there was federal money that was available. Uh, all the incentives were, um, were against uh, rehabilitation and against reuniting families. And it, it was sad because I, I, I witnessed and was, you know, part of the court proceedings of a large number of families that were destroyed. And I, I, I'm not a social scientist, but I know that the impact of these uh, separations had, you know, had incredible effect on future generations of these families and, and the people that were part of it. Uh, for those of you that might have just uh, joined us on Healthy Options, uh, today we're speaking with Jeff Kaufman. Um, he is formerly um, a, a cop from the NYPD and also an attorney. Um, and he's joining us uh, he, as a speaker for LEAP, uh, L-E-A-P, that's Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. And today we're talking about um, advocating for the uh, ending of the war on drugs. Um, so when when you were um, in, in the court system uh, working at that time, about what time frame? What what year was it around? That uh, this is the mid eighties to okay. the mid nineties. So. Okay, and and then um, you went to Rikers Island. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was. Um, <laughs> it, it, I, again, I'm, I guess some people say I don't have much job security, uh, but. Each of those movements uh, were done, and in hindsight, uh, fit into a nice pattern, especially when I talk about the drug war and the effect it's had on people. Uh, I was offered a position in, in, the, in the notorious jail of New York City, uh, Rikers, which had, because New York uh, State has a, a very strange law treating um, children who are 16 to, to 18 as adults for criminal purposes, um, children were put in an adult jail. Um, they were segregated. Uh, at least in terms of where they slept, they were not segregated in the jail, uh, for uh, basically uh, criminal acts that, uh, and treated as adults. Um, so you could have a 16-year-old that was accused of, of a crime, would, would be treated in the same kind of way as an adult uh, would be treated. Uh, there were some provisions that could be made in extraordinary circumstances to treat the, um, the uh, child as a, as a child uh, and subject to the uh, family court system. Uh, but generally, um, they needed to be educated, uh, and they had a high school on Rikers Island, which still exists, um, had a, uh, a number of, uh, we had thousands of students uh, that went through the system. These are 16 to 19-year-olds uh, who were eligible, and not only eligible, but required by state law to be educated. Um, and I was given an incredible opportunity to teach law um, to these students who were facing some of the most serious crimes uh, that were pending in New York City court system, uh, including murder, robbery, uh, and other uh, serious felonies. Uh, and it was um, through, this, through this other lens that I was able to uh, focus some uh, real, real 
uh, understanding of the implications of this drug war and how it really affected not only these these children, uh, but also the um, the families that were involved and, of course, uh, the victims of, of, of my students' crimes. It was, it was eye-opening. Uh, we had uh, every case just about had some drug involvement in it. Um, there was, uh, if there wasn't a specific issue directly relating to, to, to the drug war, there was some aspect of it that was uh, involved in the drug war. Um, it became extremely clear at that point, although I, I knew it most of, most of my career, um, there was an incredible racial component to um, who was accused of these crimes and who was involved in these crimes and, and how they were involved in terms of uh, the drug war. And I was uh, able to be in a, in a unique position to be able to see how not only how these children were being treated by the criminal justice system, but also how, um, how they, you know, what their futures were. I mean, we're dealing with some, with some young people that, you know, 16, 17 years old who were facing, you know, murder cases that would put them away for the rest of their lives. Uh, and then when you research and you saw what you know what the case was about, you realize they were part of, you know, a group or, or, or others that were involved in a homicide um, that uh, was usually almost almost always involved in some kind of uh, drug trafficking. Uh, and you realize that, that these children were also, in fact, I did meet um, a child uh, who I had represented their parents as an attorney, uh, who. When that child was, uh, he was uh, about three years old when I when I uh, met him in the family court system, and there he was in in Rikers facing a murder case uh, at 17. Wow! It was it yeah. was uh, I I lived the uh, the the uh, process of the the future and the impact this drug war has had on on uh, a large segment of our population, and it it, it was it was tragic, but it also it also was able for me to be um, to use whatever skills I had to to try to help uh, these uh, these children and others that were involved in the system, and that's one of the reasons why I became a leap a leap speaker was because I saw that that this uh, this transition that was taking place was something that was necessary to to try to get the drug laws uh, um, you know uh, declared uh, you know to, to have these drug laws. Uh, eradicated yeah so so talk a little bit about leap uh what it stands for and what what the mission statement or policy is of leap and how how well we kind of say a little bit how but how you actually became involved in leap right well it it, it was it, it was the, the leader uh, one of the leaders of, uh, of of leap actually gave me a call after he read an article about me in in the new york times um uh, did not even know that LEAP existed. This was in 2005. Um, LEAP had started, I think, about two or three years earlier. Than and just, just repeat for our listeners what LEAP stands for. Okay, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. And one of the things that, um, that the organization um, stands for is that um, it, it deals with um, trying, trying to get speakers and other people involved in a conversation that come from criminal justice backgrounds. And it's an incredibly powerful thing to... To, to speak to audiences, including yours, um, to basically uh, relate as a former police officer, and we do or did it have some um, actually serving police officers, although you can imagine it's kind of difficult for a police officer um, while serving to, 
to, mm-hmm. to speak fully. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, the people can relate to the fact that there are police officers um, that are willing to talk about about what this is, what this drug war has done to us, and what needs to be changed to make certain that it doesn't hurt others, uh, and what the role of policing is in, in in a democratic society, and and why drugs shouldn't be part of it. So, in 2002, a group of uh, of uh, international group of uh, of founders got together, ex uh, police officers, judges, and other and prosecutors, and they basically said, you know, we have to we have to change the conversation in this country and basically talk about um, the ending drug prohibition, getting rid of all drug laws, uh, not just marijuana as you have in, as you have the current question in, in, in your ballot in, in your state, but uh, all drug laws because we recognize what is done um, to society and we have the experience as police, as former police officers and former prosecutors to understand um, the devastating effect this has had on on society, how it how it is used uh, uh, to hurt certain groups of people uh, along race lines, along uh, ethnic lines, depending upon you know how it has been how how it grew up over the years, but basically to 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 to, to engage in this conversation that that we should deal with you know with drug addiction and other issues involving drugs as medical issues and not criminal justice issues. And that making and society making a choice um, to deal with these problems uh, as a criminal justice system, uh, as part of the criminal justice system, has only increased the number of jails and jail spaces and and, and separations of families and and, uh, and it has devastated our neighborhoods. Uh, it has destroyed. It has changed the politics of this country to to distrust people, to distrust the police, to actually hamper police in. In, in what their main function should be in protecting society and protecting uh, people from you know from crime from things that are that really need to be dealt with you know on an emergency basis and um, and leap has grown now to uh, well over 150,000 members um, although uh, to be a member of, of leap uh, it, you're not required to be a uh, former police officer or prosecutor or criminal justice person um, that's to be a speaker for the group but uh, uh, more than 150,000 people uh, worldwide have uh, joined and agreed that the drug laws, uh, as they exist, uh, should be changed and prohibition should be should should uh, stop. And I think that uh, people do recognize that uh, you know. And I've seen now in the last 10 years that I've I've spoken for for Leap that the conversation has changed. Uh, I would like to believe that you know that Leap was a main factor in that, but we are part of uh, of this issue um, and. Raising it in the way in which we have, and the and the commitment that that our members have toward um, changing minds, and and I can remember, for example, speaking before uh, a National Education Association convention in in New Jersey, um, talking about uh, about the drug laws and how draconian they were, and how um, how how racially biased they were, and what they were doing to the police and and, and to our schools. And um, the reaction was at first extremely hostile. Uh, you know, you don't understand. Uh, you know, uh, our children get hooked on this stuff, and 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 we can't teach them, and 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 and, and neighborhoods are ruined. And then, you know, when I methodically go through the history of of uh, the drug war and why it's been perpetuated and and why it why it has existed the way it has, and and what it's done to you know to ed- in education uh, as a teacher I can speak 
that uh, as an educator and what is done as, uh, to a criminal justice system, um, I like to believe that, uh, that those questions um, resonated in, in, uh, in, in the people that have heard me uh, and have changed a lot of, a lot of minds. I think that, um, that the fact that, uh, that you are entertaining a, um, a marijuana legalization question on your ballot is a direct outgrowth of the fact that how this conversation has, has changed. And, uh, and I am very proud to be part of an organization that is, is a catalyst in this, in this change. And, and, and I hope to see that, uh, you know, within, within the near future that, that all our drug laws will be, uh, will be eradicated. Um, I, I want to remind our listeners that this is a live call-in show. Uh, we are about to open up the phone lines for your questions and comments. We're talking today with Jeff Kaufman, who is a speaker for LEAP Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. He's a former NYPD cop and attorney and a teacher. Um, and that number is 866-625-9378. Um, so please do call us. I, over the years, as as things have evolved, um, there seems to be a change in people's thinking, and I think a lot of where people are at right now, and I hope callers will address this, is if we legalize drugs, then 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 what? Or how how would we how would we back off from this this legalization uh, question? Do we we have a caller on the line? John, um, caller, would you like to go ahead? Good morning. Good morning. This is Joe in Tremont. I have a couple of questions. Now that we know the drug war... Did we lose you, Yo? I guess, I guess we did. Um, I hope that you'll call back. Again, for people calling in, that number is 866-625-9378. And it's an important thing to talk about because we do have um, coming up on the ballot next week um, the legalization of um, recreational marijuana. We already have medical marijuana in the state of Maine. And so question one is about approving the recreational use of marijuana. We have Yo back on the line mm-hmm. again. Can, do you want to go ahead? Good morning. This is Yo in Tremont. I have a couple of questions. Now that we know the drug war was invented to crush black liberation and the anti-war movement, isn't refusing amnesty to millions of drug prisoners just plain mean? And wouldn't police work in general be easier, more efficient, if there weren't so many laws? P.S. Question one does not offer an end to prohibition. Thank you for putting on this program, and thank you to everyone for supporting Community Radio. Well, thank you, thank you for the question. I'll, I'll try my best to answer that. Um, the amnesty question is, is kind of interesting because I was tangentially involved in um, some of the changes that took place to New York State's laws in terms of um, the Rockefeller drug laws. And um, when I was in college, um, the Rockefeller drug laws were passed, and we were very scared of uh, the impact that these drug laws would have because uh, it was a major sea change, and this is in the early 70s, about um, how drugs, punishment for possession and sale of drugs would be treated, uh, such that uh, certain quantities of drugs could uh, land somebody in jail for life. Um, and we started to see a number of people that received life sentences, and, and as the police departments increased their budgets towards uh, 
towards uh, uh, interdicting drugs and prosecuting uh, people for drugs, we started to see a large number of uh, life sentences being given out. Well, eventually there was a there was an outcry enough that uh, the law was changed, uh, and we had a large number of people that um, could uh, you could no longer get the, the law was changed so that life sentences were no longer available, and we had a large number of people that were in jail with life sentences. Um, that was easy. Uh, it wasn't amnesty as such, but um, those all those sentences were uh, eventually uh, reduced and um, brought down to. Uh, generally, uh, time in uh, in prison for 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 the sentences. Uh, in terms of amnesty, generally, that is clearly a question that uh, you know I don't think people should have been in jail in the first place for for uh, nonviolent uh, uh, cases. Uh, but implementing an amnesty program would would require a tremendous amount of uh, research into individual cases to make certain. But I think that should be a major factor in terms of. Uh, seeing that they uh, that that these prisoners get parole, if that if that can be shown. Um, as far as the efficiency in in the number of laws, um, having been in the legal bureau and advising uh, police officers on the implementation of criminal and other laws, I can tell you that uh, it is a very difficult job to be able to uh, enforce all of the laws or even understand all of the laws as they go forward. Um, Police are, are entrusted and entailed with the uh, with the function of actually uh, implementing and enforcing these laws. So um, they're not in a position to uh, to say, "Well, there's way too many laws," or or they're too complicated to enforce. Um, I can tell you that uh, every time the Supreme Court sp- spoke on a criminal justice issue, um, it was part of my responsibility to uh, help in training of uh, police officers in New York City. Uh, as to what the impact that would have on uh, on the street and and how criminal justice was implemented on the street, I welcome that uh, because the police department, while I was in there, was a was in a, uh, a body which I respected and knew that they would um, follow the law and do what was necessary to do that. And we had a, a legal bureau of perhaps uh, 15 to 20 attorneys um, dealing with all of these issues. Um, doesn't mean I agreed with everything they did, clearly drug forfeiture and other issues that they dealt with I didn't agree with. Uh, but efficiency and enforcement priority is something that is made at a um, – should be made in consultation with the people that are policed, uh, which I think while, while I was in the police department was done to a, to, to a large extent. Uh, I don't think it's done anymore, uh, and I think that the – that our population is not consulted in terms of what the priority should be. Uh, ha- having a, a ballot initiative and having uh, this change in terms of drug laws gives the gives the people the right to actually affect uh, this kind of change and tell the police department that we don't we don't want these drug laws and we don't want them enforced and we don't want them to have the impact that they've had on you and we don't want to have that that kind of um, racial impact. Um, I can tell you a little bit a little bit of history, though. It goes back further than just the anti-war. Um, that's the 1970s drug war. It goes back actually to 1875, and the control of opium dens in San Francisco. So, we our country has a long history of dealing with anti-drug laws, and it's going to take a, a, a lot more to to actually eradicate them. I just want to remind callers that call-in number is eight six 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 two five. Nine three seven eight. 
Can you explain um, the difference, Jeff, just for clarification, between decriminalization and legalization? Sure. Um, the 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 concept of decriminalization decriminalization is a is is a step in the direction of uh, the end of prohibition, but it is not pro, uh, the end of prohibition. Decriminalization basically takes the criminal stigma, um, the idea of 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 a criminal arrest and and other issues away from uh, certain types of uh, of drug arrests, uh, and converts them into um, into civil fines and other issues involving the um, the civil court system, the non criminal part. So um, we know that you know that that uh, and all the all the uh, people who've been accused of drug crimes um, develop these uh, significant histories of arrests and convictions and other things. It not only makes them you um, serve the time or be subject to the specific penalties of the criminal justice system, but it also makes them uh, ineligible for a number of uh, issues. I, I always thought it was very strange when I was, especially when I was in Rikers, dealing with young young people who may have thought about going to college, uh, who were facing convictions and drug offenses and finding out that, that there's a law that prohibits them from getting uh, subsidized student loans. Um, if you are convicted of uh, of a drug felony, uh, to me that's so absurd. Um, I, 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 we actually tried to, while I was in while I was in class, uh, try to organize a letter writing campaign to to certain legislators to change that. Um, but it, there are uh, there are a tremendous number of uh, of barriers to uh, normal life that result from the criminalization of drugs. Decriminalization. Um, Seemingly takes that that part of it away uh, by by not uh, uh, having a uh, conviction, a criminal conviction. Um, so if you only face civil penalties, then um, theoretically that would be you know uh, much less of a stigma. However, we still have a tremendous number of laws and other issues that they may still impact, such as uh, living in public housing. Uh, and other issues which um, decriminalization has to be very specific about uh, in terms of not uh, preventing that kind of stigma and, and allowing people not to be part of that uh, criminal justice system. However, I will tell you that in decriminalization, um, you're still arrested, you still are uh, fingerprinted, you still, you still face criminal justice uh, type of uh, initial introduction of the case. It's just that the penalties are not, uh, won't be criminal. Uh, we don't have um, a system of just, you know, handing out fines like, like parking or, uh, or, or moving violations. Um, that is uh, something that really has not come forward in decriminalization. Mm-hmm. Um, Leap and, 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 and I agree that, uh, that, that decriminalization really does not stop the, the police and the other uh, uh, parts of society that are so embedded with the drug law from performing their functions and the and, and having those deleterious impact that they do have on a society. Um, drug prohibition, the end of drug prohibition does do that. Um, it gets, it gets, it makes it very clear to society that this is a medical issue, a medical problem, and that it must be dealt with medically. Um, and that having any other, um, you know, uh, any, any, any other issue dealing with, uh, with crime in that regard just for the use or um, possession of drugs is is wrong. Now, obviously, um, and, and I don't know if I'm going to be asked this question, but many times I am. Um, if somebody is is involved in criminal activities or 
or such as uh, driving intoxicated uh, under under the influence of drugs. Um, we have very little problem with dealing with those issues, um, and and they are of course dealt with in the criminal justice system, just as driving while intoxicated would be if you were uh, drinking alcohol. Um, so those those issues need to be really clear and segregated from each other, and um, and hopefully that uh, we we although we're on a path now towards towards uh, you know towards drug uh, the end of drug prohibition, we still have a while to go, and um, I. I support every step, um, and those jurisdictions that don't have decriminalization yet, I strongly support that, even though it, it, uh, it will not generally um, necessarily end in the end of drug prohibition. But um, this has been such a long uh, and hard-fought uh, battle to get rid of these drug laws that I, I welcome any movement in that direction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, as I was about ready to start the show this morning and I was mentioning to somebody what the show was about, I got this reaction. And I wonder how you must have people kind of ask you the same, same thing. Well, it's okay to make some drugs legal, but, but all drugs, you know, there's some really dangerous things out there. I mean, I'm not sure I can go along with, you're going to make heroin legal. How, you know, how do you address that? Yeah, it, it, it is a concern because we, we, we are looking at it through the vantage point of the drug war. Uh, we're told that certain drugs are so dangerous that, that they, they can't be regulated uh, or dealt with. And, um, in fact, all the states have, you know, we, we classify our drugs in terms of schedules, in terms of their, 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 um, their usefulness for medicinal purposes. Uh, we are learning every day that there are uh, different uses for different classes of drugs that we once thought were totally um, impossible to be used uh, medicinally or in any other kind of way. Um, one thing that's great about uh, about science and, and, and medicine is that uh, there are people still looking for, for ways to deal with it. Um, so what became in the past a, a really dangerous type of drug all of a sudden became a panacea for some other kind of cure or became uh, necessary for some kind of psychiatric for treatment of psychiatric illness all those kinds of things. And I can tell you that, that um, if we open the, uh, the gates up after drug prohibition to, you know, just allowing um, the free reign of dr the drug trade, we wouldn't have changed much other than the fact that, uh, that people would probably get more scared about the way in which drugs are dealt with. It must be released into some kind of regulated system. Um, we already have a, a medical system which is highly regulated and, and deals with uh, all kinds of very, quote-unquote, dangerous drugs already. In fact, so many, many of which are abused uh, and, and, need, uh, and need treatment, just like uh, drugs that are found on the street. Um, but outside that therapeutic relationship, there's going to be no possibility for dealing with the abuse uh, of drugs and, and all the effects that it might have on on people mm -hmm. uh, and its impact. We have a caller on the line. We have uh, Fred from Tenants Harbor. Are you there, Fred? I am. Thanks for calling. Hey, uh, thank you both, and thank you all for your work uh, against the insanity and uh, toward uh, towards sanity. Cause, uh, thank you. Yeah, it's just, uh, <laughs> well, we know the uh, the powers that be have a, some of the powers that be have a big stake of money and otherwise in the, uh, in the drug... Uh, in the uh, drug prohibition thing, and uh, uh, we got to we got to keep working against it. So thank you, so, thank you so much. Thank you, Fred. Thanks for your call. I think Fred, um, you know, brings up an interesting point um, on the darker side of things. Who benefits from the war on drugs? 
Yeah, uh, that that that's something I wish I, you know, those lines could be clearly drawn. It would it would it would be um, it would be clearer in terms of uh, of who could possibly derive benefit out of this whole system. I mean, the the the, the usual financial benefits. Let's well, say. I, you know, obviously the criminal justice system, the certain yeah, criminal yeah. justice system, um, you know, purchasing anti-aircraft guns, maybe if you're in that business, you might like, uh, you know, drug forfeiture and the money that it comes by. Uh, there are, uh, you know, we can go down a list of, of, of people and, and institutions uh, that need to be changed at, after uh, prohibition is, is uh, ended. We've um, got another the, caller on the line. Uh, we sure. have Frank okay. from Lemoyne. You want to join us, Frank? Sure. Yeah, it's funny that you're talking about the uh, economics of the drug the drug situation. You fight a big battle against all the people who run the prisons and chase people around for drugs, and and um, it's a huge economic base, and they want to privatize prisons. Um, full disclosure here, I, I was in federal prison from uh, smuggling marijuana in from Mexico in 1971, then a fugitive for years, I finally did my time. And most of the people, and you know, good, you know this. There's a good majority of people in jail for just for drugs, not violent crime. I'd say over half of them. Um, and, and disparity about the crack and the, uh, the other kind of cocaine um, between the white and the black guys. Wow, that's a huge difference. I mean, you could have several little ounces of crack and do get 15 years and have tons of coke and get 10 years if you're a white boy. I saw it in person. And it's just, uh, you got a hard job. And I'm, I follow you guys on the computer half for years. Um, I'm not being cynical, but good luck. Um, well, thank, Jeff, thank, would you give so the much. website for Leap so people can yeah, so follow? Leap.cc is the website. You can, you can uh, get all our speakers' bios. You can get uh, background information, current news, and and other issues, and you can join LEAP uh, as a supporter um, also on that website as well. And we encourage you to look at it and, um, and, and use it as a gateway to understanding what the drug war has done to us as a society and more specifically as people involved in the criminal justice system. Um, you know, I was thinking about the question, what can ordinary people do to address the war on drugs? And as you're mentioning the website, um, I have found the LEAP website to be one of the greatest sources of information that I've seen on any website, how much is packed in there. So if people really want to, if you want to watch videos, if you want to find out books that are written about the subject, as you're saying, Jeff, read the, read the bios of the speakers, there's a, a tremendous amount of information there. Um, I also want to address, because this is such an issue, here in Maine, we're, we're painfully aware that we have an opiate addiction problem. And I think an awful lot of Mainers who are maybe not real knowledgeable about illegal drugs, because probably they don't use them, but they have this attitude that the only way to control the opiate addiction problem uh, is that we, we have to clamp down on things. I mean, our governor has suggested that we uh, take money and hire uh, new DEA agents. Um, what could a person say to someone who is very fearful about this issue um, regarding that? What, what would help people understand the situation more? Well, the, the, the 
best argument, so to speak, uh, dealing with this issue is to look at what the drug war has done. Um, the fact is, is that is that the fact that you're facing um, these kinds of epidemics, medical issue epidemics, and heroin and other kinds of drugs, um, shows the failure of the approach that we've taken for the last 46 years. I mean, it is it is a it, it is just by results that you can tell what's going on. We're not. We're not doing what your governor has suggested. We're not even, and putting more money at it um, is not is has been a solution, an attempt at a solution for the last 46 years, and has done. The only thing it's done is it's made police departments less accountable to the public. It's made um, us, our, the criminal justice system uh, to be something that we're not proud of, that we see as a, as an aspect of 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 some of the main problems and issues in our society, not as a, as a way to help and, 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 and deal with the issues in society. And it's, it's alienated any attempt that people have towards, towards trying to, to, um, you know, to deal with drug abuse problems. It, it, uh, the amount, the concentrations of, of drugs have gone up in, in all areas because there's a competitive market that has developed over, uh, over getting uh, drugs, pure drugs out to people so that they um, that that people can purchase their brand of, of drug. Uh, there, the approach that we've taken is totally wrong, uh, and that is the best argument against um, against continuing it. When when we do something that's uh, that, that's fundamentally wrong, um, we should know that it needs to be changed. Um, we, we have another caller it. on the line. Maybe sure. we can okay. uh, David sure. from Brooklyn. Are you there, David? I'm here. Uh, you're there. Thanks uh, for calling. Thanks so much for the program and for the uh, the efforts that it uh, indicates. Uh, all we have to do is look at the history of alcohol prohibition to see the problem. Uh, you know, it's a, it's an easy recourse to our history. You know, to to prove to prove the point. I I was just uh, talking a, a, a weekend or two ago with. Uh, a wonderful man who uh, provides an interface uh, in Cumberland County between addicts who have realized that it's bigger than they are, they can't deal with it, they've had enough and they want to kick, uh, and the uh, society, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the uh, organizations, I guess you'd say, out there which are designed to help that person. Uh, and this individual works at the interface of the police department and the uh, and the street. You know, uh, people come in to the police department. They say, "I've had it. Here's my stuff. I got to get. I got to get well. Who can I talk to?" And this guy is there. Uh, they're not arrested. This happens in only two counties, apparently, to my shock, in the whole state of Maine, where if somebody comes in and says they've had enough and want to get better, they're not first uh, clapped in jail. Uh, uh, most other states in the Union, apparently, that's not the case. If you, if, if you, want, to, if you want to get over your addiction, the, the, the police department is uh, your first recourse as you know, a, a, a means to help rather than a means to incarceration. And I just wondered what your understanding of this whole thing is to me. This was great news to me and i was i was amazed and shocked that there's only two 
counties where it's possible to even be that kind of an interfaith person. And I was very gratified to know there are a few who are actually being that. And how can we get to that point in more of the counties in this state? Okay, well, I, I, that, that sounds extremely encouraging, and I'm not familiar with the specific uh, programs in, in your state that allow that I think in those counties. Angels, I, can, I believe. Angels, okay. The thing is, is that, is that programs like that um, face significant, significant um, legal uh, issues because of the fact that they um, have to operate within the context of, of uh, drug prohibition. And the fact is, is that uh, dealing with uh, people who come in uh, to the system, um, whatever way they come in, uh, with drugs on them or, you know, in, in, involved in, in, in drug activity, means that the, there has to be places for them to go, uh, and, there has to, and the police have to be able to, you know, deal with them in, in, a, in a supportive manner rather than as, a, as criminals. Uh, it takes a, a real, you know, uh, change in terms of, of, of understanding. Uh, some of the programs are very well uh, thought of and dealt with, and and then find that uh, because of uh, budgetary constraints and other issues, uh, finding uh, rehab beds is very difficult. Um, and the fact that people will come into, you know, they don't want to be addicted, they don't want they don't want to have this issue on them, uh, but they need to they they need a a, a real place to actually um, be rehabilitated, um, and that can be very difficult when you're spending you know a large part of your your uh, your revenue on on enforcing drug laws, um, there has to be, you know, this this change has to take place. We've we've spent uh, in the last 46 years well over a trillion dollars in in drug enforcement. That money could do incredible amount to to create those kinds of uh, relationships, whether they're individuals in in, in individual counties or um, done uh, statewide and otherwise to be able to um, to take these funds and and put them where they really can help people and not uh, not further stigmatize them or, or attempt to try to uh, change them without without the possibility of actually getting rehabilitated. Mm-hmm. I, I would uh, add uh, personally, a personal insight here, I work with incarcerated men, the majority of whom uh, have substance abuse problems, and they have told me over and over again over the past six years that here in Maine, they keep trying to get into drug rehab programs, and they're full. The calling list, the waiting list is long. They can't get in because they don't have insurance. It goes on and on and on. So clearly here in Maine, um, we could be looking at allocating more funds for rehabilitation uh, and drug addiction. Huge, huge problem. And I think that also applies to the opiate addiction problem as well. Um, so that kind of leaves me with a bit of a hopeful note. Over the years, Jeff, uh, have you seen things improving? Are we getting there? What's what's hopeful? What's happening here oh, that we should absolutely. get excited I, about? I, I, I wouldn't be speaking to your audience if I didn't think <laughs> there was a light at the end of this tunnel. Although I will yeah. tell you it, it's been shining a lot brighter than when I first started. Um, there has been a sea change in terms of people's attitudes. You can actually talk about this um, and not be looked at like you were from Mars or something. Uh, and the fact is, is that you know we see we see nine states now with different different types of referendum before them. Um, your state uh, with the recreational use of marijuana, They're, the discussions are taking place. Um, the future of what the world would look like uh, without um, these crazy drug laws. 
um, is actually starting to be discussed. What would what would this what would the what would post drug prohibition look like? We can really start to see those kinds of conversations when people are actively talking about it. We have uh, a recent report from uh, from from Human Rights that has dealt with uh, some of these issues to show exactly how much this over the years this has has hurt us and. There's a, a real widespread now understanding of the impact that this drug war is not just, you know, get the bad guys off the street. Uh, it basically, it, it's coming to our own homes, and it's affected us um, in the way in which we deal with our families, the way in which we deal with ourselves, uh, in, in ways that nobody in 1970 could have, uh, could have predicted when these, when these laws first, when these real heavy laws first went on the books. We have the experience. We know what we've gone through, and um, we can start seeing that uh, we we can make the, um, the 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 world change to what we need. We don't have to, you know. Your callers have talked about the embedded interests and those kinds of things. Sure, I mean that change would never occur if uh, if, if people thought that interests were what controlled us. Um, it doesn't. Uh, what controls us is us. And if we have the opportunity to change things and we really understand, like your show is doing, um, uh, to a broad spectrum of people, that, that, that there are other ways of thinking about uh, our drug policies that I think things uh, have and, and will continue to change. And then um, uh, hopefully soon that we will see the end of drug prohibition. Yeah, I, th- I think organizations like LEAP have so helped to open the conversation. I, You know, we live here in Maine. It's a rural state. I have a small farm. The other day, my hay man came over, and we started talking about this. And he said, I've seen too many young people have their lives ruined through this. Everybody knows someone in their family or friends or relatives or someone who's been affected by this. And the open conversation, I think, is leading us to a future that hopefully is going to look very, very different. Would you give the the LEAP website one more time, Jeff? Sure. It's LEAP, L-E-A-P dot C-C. Right. So I want to thank you very much, Jeff, for joining us on uh, from LEAP today. And I also want to say, uh, thank our station manager, Don Greenman, and all of our listeners and callers. Be well, and please join us next month for Healthy Options. Thank you so much. Support for WERU comes from Susan Bakley and Chris Marshall at the 13th Moon Center in Montville, offering shamanic healing, art from the heart, through art, therapy, and classes since 1985. More information is available at 13thmooncenter.net, all spelled out, or 589-3063. WERU Community Radio has an open meeting policy, which means that committee meetings and board of directors meetings are open for public observation. The schedule of meetings is as follows. Development Committee, first Wednesday of each month, 6 to 7.30 p.m. Program Advisory Committee, second Wednesday of each month, 5.30 to 7 p.m. Finance Committee, second Wednesday of each month, 6 to 8 p.m. Board of Directors, third Monday of each month.